Chapter 31 of Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Suvestra. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Suvestra. Translated by Cranston Metcalf. Chapter 31 Fell Treachery. Number 22, Rue Messier, was a wretched one-storied house that belonged to a country vine dresser who seldom came to Paris. It was damp, dirty, and dilapidated, and would have had to be rebuilt from top to bottom if it were to be rendered habitable. There had been a long succession of so-called tenants of this hovel, shady, disreputable people who, for the most part, left without paying any rent, the landlord being only too glad if occasionally they left behind them a little miserable furniture or worn-out kitchen utensils. He was finding it ever more difficult to let the wretched house, and for weeks together it had remained unoccupied. But one day, about a month ago, he had been astonished by receiving an application for the tenancy from someone who vaguely signed himself Durand, and still further astonished by finding in the envelope banknotes representing a year's rent in advance. Delighted with this windfall, and congratulating himself on not having gone to the expense of putting the hovel into something like repair, unnecessary now since he had secured a tenant, and a good one for at least twelve months, the landlord promptly sent a receipt to this Durand with the keys and thought no more about the matter. In the principal room on the first floor of this hovel, a little poor furniture had been put, a shabby sofa, an equally shabby armchair, a few cane-bottomed chairs, and a deal table. On the table was a teapot, a small kettle over a spirit lamp, and a few cups and small cakes. A smoky lamp shed a dim light over this depressing interior, and a handful of coal was smoldering in the cracked grate. And here in these miserable surroundings, Lady Beltham was installed on this 18th of December. The great lady was even paler than usual, and her eyes shone with a curious brilliance. That she was suffering from the most acute and feverish nervous excitement was patent from the way in which she kept putting her hands to her heart as though the violence of its throbbing were unendurable, and from the restless way in which she paced the room, stopping at every other step to listen for some sound to reach her through the silence of the night. Once she stepped quickly from the middle of the room to the wall opposite the door that opened onto the staircase. She pushed ajar the door of a small cupboard and murmured, Hush! making a warning movement with her hands, as if addressing someone concealed there. Then she moved forward again, and sinking on to the sofa, pressed her hands against her throbbing temples. No one yet, she murmured presently. Oh, I would give ten years of my life to... Is all really lost? Her eyes wandered around the room. What a forbidding, squalid place! and again she sprang to her feet and paced the room. Through the grimy panes of the window, she could just see a long row of roofs and chimneys outlined against the sky. Oh, those black roofs, those horrible black roofs, she muttered. The already wretched light in the wretched room was burning dimmer, and Lady Beltham turned up the wick of the lamp. As she did so, she caught a sound and stopped. Can that be he? she exclaimed, and hurried to the door footsteps, and a man's footsteps. The next moment she was sure. Someone stumbled in the passage below, came slowly up the stairs, was on the landing. 
Lady Beltham recoiled to the sofa and sank down on it, turning her back to the door and hiding her face in her hands. Vagrand! Vagrand was a man with a passion for adventure, but invariable success in his flirtations had made him blasé, and now it was only the absolutely novel that could appeal to him. And there could certainly be no question about the woman who had sent him the present invitation being anything but a commonplace one. Moreover, it was not just any woman who had asked him to keep this assignation in the outward guise of Gurn, but the one woman in whose heart the murderer ought to inspire the greatest abhorrence, the widow of the man whom Gurn had murdered. What should his deportment be when he came face to face with her? That was what preoccupied the actor as he left the theater and made him dismiss the taxi in which he had started before he reached his destination. Valgrand came into the room slowly and with a trained eye for effect. He flung his cloak and hat theatrically on the armchair and moved towards Lady Beltham, who still sat motionless with her face hidden in her hands. "'I have come,' he said in deep tones. Lady Beltham uttered a little exclamation, as if of surprise, and seemed even more anxious to hide from him. "'Odd,' thought Belgrand. "'She seems to be really upset. "'What can I say to her, I wonder?' But Lady Beltham made a great effort, and sat up, looking at the actor with strained eyes, yet striving to force a smile. "'Thank you for coming, sir,' she murmured. "'It is not from you, madam, that the thanks should come,' Valgrand answered magnificently. "'Quite the reverse. I am infinitely grateful to you for having summoned me. Pray believe that I would have been here even sooner, but for the delay inevitable on a first performance.' "'But you are cold,' he broke off, for Lady Beltham was shivering. "'Yes, I am,' she said almost inaudibly, mechanically pulling a scarf over her shoulders." Valgrand was standing, taking in every detail of the squalid room in which he found himself with this woman whose wealth and taste and sumptuous home at Nuit were notorious. I must clear up this mystery, he thought, while he moved to the window to see that it was shut, and searched about in vain for a little coal to put upon the fire. While he was thus occupied, Lady Beltham also rose, and going to the table poured out two cups of tea. "'Perhaps this will warm us, in the absence of anything better,' she said, making an effort to seem more amiable. "'I am afraid it is rather strong, Monsieur Vagrand. I hope you do not mind.' And with a hand that trembled as if it held a heavy weight, she brought one of the cups to her guest. "'Tea never upsets me, madame,' Vagrand replied as he took the cup. "'Indeed, I like it.' He came to the table and picked up the basin filled with castor sugar, making first as if to put some in her cup. "'Thanks. I never take sugar in tea,' she said. Vagrand made a little grimace. "'I admire you, but I will not imitate you,' he said, and unceremoniously tipped a generous helping of the sugar into his own cup. Lady Beltham watched him with haggard eyes. While they were sipping their tea, there was silence between them. Lady Beltham went back to the sofa, and Vagrand took a chair quite close to her. The conversation was certainly lacking in animation, he reflected whimsically. Would the lady succeed in reducing him to the level of intelligence of a callow schoolboy? And she most certainly did seem to be horribly upset. He raised his eyes to her and found that she was gazing into infinity. One has got to draw upon psychology here, Vagrand mused. 
it is not me myself in whom this lovely creature takes any interest, or she would not have desired me to come in these trappings that make me look like Gurn. It's his skin that I must stop in. But what is the proper attitude to adopt? The sentimental or the brutal? Shall I appeal to her proselytizing mania and do the repentant sinner act? I'll chance it. Here goes. And he rose to his feet. As he moved, Lady Beltham looked round, uneasy, frightened, almost anguished. It seemed as though she realized that the moment had come for extraordinary things to happen. Valgrand began to speak as he did upon the stage, restraining his effects at first and controlling his voice of set purpose to give full effect to it later on, modulating it cleverly. At your summons, madam, the prisoner Gurn has burst his bonds, broken through the door of his cell and scaled his prison walls, triumphing over every obstacle with a single object of coming to your feet. He comes, and he took a step nearer to her. Lady Beltham stayed him with a gesture of terror. Don't, don't, please say no more, she murmured. I've got a bite, Valgrand said to himself. Let's try another bait. And, as if repeating a part, he said dramatically, Has your charitable heart turned toward the guilty soul that you fain would rescue from transgression? Men say you are so great a lady, so good, so near to heaven. Again Lady Beltham put up a protesting hand. Not that, not that, she said imploringly. Oh, this is torture. Go away. In her distress she was really superbly beautiful. But Valgrand knew too much about women of every temperament, neurotic, hysterical, and many other kind, not to suppose that here he was merely taking part in a sentimental comedy. He made a rough gesture and laid his hand on Lady Beltham's arm. "'Do you not know me?' he said harshly. "'I am Gurn. I will crush you to my heart.' And he tried to draw her close to him. But this time Lady Beltham threw him off with the violence of despair. "'Stand back, you brute!' she cried in tones that there was no mistaking. Valgrand recoiled in real dismay, and stood silent in the middle of the room, while Lady Beltham went to the wall furthest from him and leaned for support against it. "'Listen, madame,' Valgrand began presently, in dulcet tones that had the effect of making Lady Beltham try to control her emotion and murmur some faint words of apology. Of course you know I am Vagrand, Vagrand the actor. I will apologize for having come to you like this, but I have some small excuse in your note. My note, she murmured. Oh, oh yes, I forgot. Vagrand went on, seeming to pick his words. You have overestimated your strength, and now perhaps you find the resemblance too startling? Do not be frightened, but your letter came to me like healing balm upon a quivering wound, for weeks, long weeks, the actor stopped and mechanically rubbed his eyes. It's odd, he thought to himself, but I feel ever so much more inclined to go to sleep than to make love. He shook off his real desire for sleep and began again. I have loved you since the day I saw you first. I love you with an intensity. For some moments Lady Beltham had been looking at him with a calmer air and eyes that were less hostile. The old amorist observed it, and made a tremendous effort to overcome his most inopportune drowsiness. How shall I be silent, when at last kind heaven is about to grant the fondest desire of my heart, when, all afire with love, I am kneeling at your feet? 
Valgrand dropped to his knees. Lady Beltham drew herself up, listening. In the distance, a clock struck four. Oh, I can bear it no longer, she cried stammeringly. I can bear no more. Listen, four o'clock. No, no, it is too much, too much for me. The woman seemed absolutely frantic. She paced up and down the room like a caged animal. Then she came close to Valgrand and looked at him with an immense pity in her eyes. Go, sir. If you believe in God, go away. Go as quickly as you can. Valgrand struggled to his feet. His head was heavy, and he had an irresistible desire to hold his tongue and just stay where he was. Partly from gallantry, and partly from his desire not to move, he murmured, not without a certain aptness, I believe only in the God of love, madam, and he bids me remain. In vain did Lady Beltham make every effort to rouse the actor and induce him to go away. In vain were all her frantic appeals to him to fly. I will stay, was all he said, and he dropped heavily on the sofa by Lady Beltham's side and mechanically tried to put his arm round her. Listen, she began, freeing herself from him. In heaven's name you must... And yet I cannot tell you. Oh, it is horrible. I am going mad. How am I to choose? What am I to do? Which... Oh, go, go, go. There is not a minute to lose. I will stay, said Valgrand again. This amazing drowsiness was gaining on him so fast that he had but one desire left, for sleep. Surely a strange assignation, this, and a poor kind of lover, too. Lady Beltham stopped her torrent of appeal, and looked at the actor crumpled up beside her. Suddenly she started and listened. A slight noise became audible, coming from the staircase. Lady Beltham stood erect and rigid, then dropped to her knees upon the floor. Oh, it is all over, she sobbed. In spite of his overwhelming longing for sleep, Valgrand suddenly started. Two heavy hands fell on his shoulder, and then his arms were pulled behind him, and his wrists rapidly bound together. Good God, he cried, in stupefied surprise, turning quickly round. Two men stood before him, old soldiers by the look of them, in dark uniforms relieved only by the gleam of metal buttons. He was going to say more, but one of the men laid his hands over his lips. Hush, he said peremptorily. Valgrand made frantic efforts to prevent himself from falling. What does this mean? Let me go. What right? The two men began to drag him gently away. Come along, said one of them in his ear. Time's up. Don't be obstinate. Besides, you know it's quite useless to resist, Gurn, the other added, not unkindly. Nothing in the world could... I don't understand, Valgrand protested feebly. Who are you? And why do you call me Gurn? Let me finish, growled one of the men irritably. You know we are running an awful risk in letting you out of the prison and bringing you here when you are supposed to be with the chaplain. You swore you would behave squarely with us and go back when you were told. Now you've got to keep your promise. The lady paid us well to give you an hour with her, the other band put in. But you've had more than an hour and a half, and we've got our characters and our situations to look after. So now come along, Gurn, and don't let us have any nonsense. Valgrand, fighting hard against his overpowering sleepiness, began to have some vague comprehension of what was happening. He recognized the uniforms and guessed that the men were prison warders. Good God, he exclaimed thickly, the fools think I am Gurn, but I am not Gurn. Ask. He cast a despairing eye at Lady Beltham, 
who throughout the awful scene remained on her knees in a corner of the room, dumb with anguish, apparently deaf and turned to stone. "'Tell them, madam,' he implored her. "'Oh, God, save me!' But still the warders dragged him on towards the door. By a Herculean effort, he swayed them back with him into the middle of the room. "'I am not Gurn, I tell you,' he shouted. "'I am Valgrand, Valgrand the actor. Everybody in the world knows me. You know it, too, but search me, I tell you.' And he made a sign with his head towards his left side. "'Look in my pocketbook. My name's inside, and you'll find a letter, too. Proof of the trap I've been led into. The letter from that woman over there.' "'Better look and see, Nabe,' one warder said to the other. And to Valgrand he added, "'Not so much noise, man. Do you mean to get us all caught?' Nabe passed a quick hand through Valgrand's pockets. There was no notebook there. He shrugged his shoulders. "'Besides, what about it?' he growled. "'We brought Gurn here, didn't we? Well, we've got to take Gurn back again. That's all I know. Come on.' Beaten down by the drowsiness that was quite irresistible, and worn out by his violent but futile efforts to resist the warders, Valgrand was half-dragged, half-carried out by the two men, his head drooping on his chest, his consciousness failing. But still, as they were getting him down the stairs, his voice could be heard in the half-dark room above, bleeding more weakly and at longer intervals. I am not Gurn! I am not Gurn! Once more silence reigned in the room. After the three men had gone, Lady Beltham rose to her feet, tottered to the window, and stood there listening. She heard their footsteps crossing the street and stopping by the door into the prison. She waited for a few minutes to make sure that they had escaped unnoticed from their amazing adventure, then turned again to the sofa, struggled to unfasten the collar of her dress to get more air, drew a few deep sighs, and swooned. The door opposite the staircase opened slowly, and noiselessly Gurn emerged from the darkness and went towards Lady Beltham. The murderer flung himself at her feet, covered her face with kisses, and pressed her hands into his. Maud, he cried, Maud. She did not answer, and he hunted about the room for something to revive her. Presently, however, she recovered consciousness unaided, and uttered a faint sigh. Her lover hurried to her. Oh, Gurn, she murmured, laying her white hand on the wretch's neck. It's you, dear. Come close to me, and hold me in your arms. It was too much for me. I almost broke down and told everything. I could have borne no more. Oh, what an appalling time! She sat up sharply, her face drawn with terror. Listen, I can hear him still. Try not to think about it, Gurn whispered, caressing her. Did you hear him, how he kept on saying, I am not Gurn, I am not Gurn? Oh, heaven, grant that they may not find that out. Gurn himself was shaken by the horror of the plot he had contrived with his mistress to effect this substitution of another for himself. It surpassed in ghastliness anything that had gone before, and he had not dared to give the least hint of it to Nebe. The warders were well paid, he said to reassure her now. They would deny everything. He hesitated a second and then asked, He drank the drug, didn't he? Lady Beltham nodded assent. It will take effect. It was acting already so rapidly that I thought for a moment he would fall unconscious at my feet. Gurn drew a deep breath. Maud, we are saved, he exclaimed. See, he went on, as soon as it is light, and there are enough people in the street for us to mix with them unobserved, we will go away from here. While you were with him, 
I burned my other clothes, so I will take these to get away in. He picked up the hat and cloak which Valgrand had thrown upon the chair, and wrapped the heavy cloak around himself. This will conceal me effectively. Let us go at once, Lady Beltham exclaimed, but Gurn stayed her. I must get rid of this beard and my moustache, he said, and he took a pair of scissors from his pocket, and was walking towards a looking-glass, when suddenly they both heard the distinct sound of footsteps coming slowly and steadily up the stairs. Gurn had no time to get back to his former hiding-place. All he could do was to sink into the one armchair that was in the room, and conceal his features as well as he could by turning down the brim of the hat and turning up the collar of the cloak which the actor had forgotten. The man went white as a sheet, but Lady Beltham appeared to recover all her presence of mind and strength and daring at the approach of danger, and she hurried to the door. But though she tried to keep it shut, it slowly turned upon the hinges, and a timid, hesitating figure appeared in the doorway and advanced toward the retreating woman. "'Who are you? What do you want?' Lady Beltham faltered. "'I beg you to excuse me, madam,' the man began. "'I came to—' He caught sight of Gurn and pointed at him. "'Monsieur Vagrand knows me. I am Charlot, his dresser at the theatre, and I came to—' "'I wanted to have a word—stay.' He took a small square parcel from his pocket. Monsieur Vagrand went off so hurriedly that he forgot his pocket-book, and so I came to bring it to him. The dresser was trying to get near the murderer, whom he supposed to be his master, but Lady Beltham, in the most acute anxiety, kept between the two men. Charlot misunderstood her intention. I also came to— He stopped again and whispered to Lady Beltham. He does not speak. Is he very angry with me for coming? I didn't come out of curiosity or to cause you any trouble, madam. Will you ask him not to be very angry with his poor old Charlot? Lady Beltham felt like swooning again. She could endure very little of this old man's garrulity. Go, for goodness sake, go, she said peremptorily. I am going, Charlot said. I know I am in the way, but I must explain to him. And he raised his voice and spoke to Gurn, who sat quite still, sinking as far as he could into the shadow of the chair. You are not very angry with me, Monsieur Vagrant, are you? And getting no reply, he looked apologetically at Lady Beltham. It was all these stories, and then the street, and the prison opposite, but perhaps you do not know. You see, I read in the paper yesterday, or rather tonight, a couple of hours ago, that the man Gurn, who murdered the rich English gentleman, was to be executed this morning. And so I was rather what you might call uneasy. At first, I only meant to follow Monsieur Vagrand and wait for him down below, but I lost my way, and I have only just arrived. I found the door open, and as I did not know whether he had gone or was still here, I took the liberty to come upstairs. But I am going now, quite easy in my mind, since he is quiet and happy here with you. And I beg your pardon, madame. He threw a last appeal to where Gurn was. I hope you will forgive me, Monsieur Vagrand. He sighed as no answer was forthcoming, and made a pathetic little appeal to Lady Beltham. You will explain to him, madam, won't you? He is a kind master, and he will understand. One does get fancies like that, you know. But now I will go away easy, quite easy in my mind, since I have seen him. Charlot turned away slowly with bent shoulders. As he passed the window, he glanced outside and stopped short. Day was just beginning to break, making the wan light of the street lamp still more wan. From the window, a view could be obtained of a kind of platform at the center of the Boulevard d'Arago, 
which was bounded by the high wall of the Sante prison. This spot, usually deserted, was crowded with people, a moving mob swarming and struggling behind some hastily erected barriers. Charlot stretched a trembling hand towards the spectacle in sudden comprehension. "'Good heavens!' he cried. "'That must be where they are putting up the scaffold. "'Yes, I can see the planks and uprights. "'It is the guillotine. "'The exit—' "'The old man's words ended in a sudden cry, "'and almost simultaneously there was a heavy thud. "'Struck from behind, Charlot fell like a log to the floor, "'while Lady Beltham recoiled in terror, "'clenching her fist to prevent herself from screaming.' Seizing the opportunity presented by Vagrand's faithful servant standing so still, hypnotized by the gruesome spectacle being prepared outside, Gurn had drawn a knife from his pocket, and springing upon the unfortunate old man, had driven the blade up to the hilt behind his neck. Charlot fell prone and rigid, the weapon remaining in the wound and stopping the flow of blood. Lady Beltham was staring at the victim in horror, but Gurn seized her roughly by the arm. Without troubling to alter the appearance of his face, but horrified as she was by the tragedies which had succeeded one another in such appalling and rapid succession during this awful night, Gurn drew the half-fainting woman to him and hurried her away. "'Come quick,' he muttered hoarsely. "'Let us get out of this!' End of chapter 31 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com